As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, last month's inflation number, I mean, I guess it was just a disappointment, right? Because two months ago, <laughs> it was this cool number, both on headline, core, like, oh, maybe the turn is finally here. And then last month, it was like, nope, straight back up again. How many words did you write about why people should be focused on month on month versus year on year? <laughs> no, I, st- <laughs> I still think that from an investor standpoint, or just someone trying to understand the economy, clearly, like, the sequential numbers are more telling. I wasn't trying to, Tracy, I I, I resent the insinuation that you think I would write something. I would would never insinuate anything. Okay. But you're right. Okay. So people were expecting inflation to start to slow down a little bit. And that's why there was lots of talk about why you should look at the sequential month on month data versus the year on year. But what we saw instead was basically any way you slice the data, it looked disappointing. Yeah. And were you going to defend month on month again? No, no, of course month. I was just going to say, Ironically, the one, the only measure that looked good was the completely unsliced headline data because that was so far dragged out. Okay, okay. But the moment you did even the slightest bit of prodding under headline, it was like, oh my God, raging hot. All right. Well, the... I think the the big takeaway from that number, other than it being disappointing, was the fact that we really see some of these price increases starting to spread from things like food and energy and more towards services. And services, as everyone is now finding out, is a big, big part of the core index. And I guess everyone called this too. Like, I think last year they're like, oh, we're going to have this big shift to services. Mm -hmm. And yeah, sure, goods prices will come down and bullwhip effects and inventories and all that. But now it's here and it's like, oh man, this could be here for a while and it's not slowing down yet. Yeah. And I think the big question is how long does it take to feed into the index and how long does it take to kind of go away? And there are different data points and there's been some discussion of this as well. There's private market data points, for instance, that show rents are starting to slow. So when does that feed into CPI? Right. So various online companies like Zillow or something, they'll have a rent index. Mm -hmm. And this sort of gets to the question because- First of all, the thing that one of the big upward drivers of inflation in the last report was rent. Everyone, most people feel rent. It's like a very salient category. There are some categories that maybe are more hidden. Rent is not one of them. Shelter is not one of them. But then, yes, there is this thing. So it's like, okay, we have these private measures that seem to be rolling over a little bit, but the numbers in the CPI keep going up. So is this a case where the CPI is just lagged? Like, mm-hmm. is it bad data? Or is it people are misunderstanding the relationship between the official government numbers and what some of these private surveys are saying. Well, 
today we are going to be digging deep into those numbers, right? Absolutely. So let's get right to it. We have the ultimate guest for digging into inflation numbers. And he knows more about like what these numbers actually mean and how they're derived. Mm -hmm. I think you've talked to him several times in your reporting on like the minutia, like you, when you did like mayonnaise reporting, it's like, okay, where is this in which index and how much of this is like soy oils versus condiments. Yeah. Like he knows everything. The way we measure inflation never ceases to amaze me. And there's just so much to say about the actual construction yes. of the indices and things that people don't normally talk about, but we probably should. Let's talk about them. We are going to be bringing back to the show a past guest. Omer Sharif he is the president and founder of Inflation Insights, and he will answer all our questions about why some numbers are going up, and maybe some hopefully that go down. So Omer, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me back. What's going on? When's the numbers going to start turning down? This is, I thought inflation was transitory. I, I made a whole like, you know, I was like, I was like on team transitory. Now I look ridiculous. Um, well, <laughs> I, I think probably, you know, the turn of this year is, okay. is what I'm, I'm thinking is we're going to start to see the monthly rate, especially in the core, start to really kind of come off. I mean, we've been kind of stuck around 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6 every month on the core, pretty yeah. much for close to a year. Um, we haven't got a lot of relief, but I think that relief is coming from a few different areas, hopefully in the next couple of months. Okay. I'm going to claim, it doesn't matter how long it takes, I'm going to claim victory for in five years, if inflation comes down. Great. Um, Okay. Well, maybe we can talk about one of the things that people expected to start coming down and it hasn't, at least according to um, last month's data, and that's used cars, car prices. And this was one of the big drivers of inflation actually you know, going up over the past year or so. Why right. haven't prices come down? This is what everyone was expecting to happen. Yeah. So used car prices, like a lot of things, uh, you know, when prices are, wholesale prices are going up, they adjust very quickly on the way up. When they are coming down, they take a little while to come down. And so what we've seen, honestly, all year long is that wholesale prices are down very, very sharply. You want to look at Mannheim, uh, Black Book data, J.D. Power, which is source data actually for the BLS. Um, all of these things are down you know, 10, 11, 12 percent, yeah. depending on the index over the last six, seven months. Retail, though, on the other hand, has been kind of roughly flat because a lot of sellers are not really pulling down their prices. But we are starting to see that change. And really over the last six to seven weeks, I would say that that is starting to adjust. So model years, you know, two-year-old models, three-year-old models, those prices, retail prices are coming down. You can see this in the Black Book Retail Index, for example, prices were down about two and a half percent in August. So all we're really waiting to see is that data translate into the CPI index for used cars. And I think, you know, September is a good point where that might enter, but I think October is probably um, the month we really want to focus on. September, there's a lot of adjustments that are happening yeah. in September, but September, October, I think is when you really are going to start to see the retail stuff uh, on the used cars uh, index start to come come off in the CPI. And that, that's going to be a big boon in terms of, you know, getting that core weight, core index lower. How do you actually go about, because this is your day-to-day business, mm-hmm. how do you go about trying to measure that yeah. lag between, you know, what we see in the market and what we actually see showing up in the CPI data. First of all, you're looking at these market indices, you know, whether it's Mannheim or, or, or BlackBook, and you're essentially just mapping them at the wholesale level against the retail price index for the CPI. Um, now, obviously, wholesale, you know, typically what you'll find is the strongest correlations will be with wholesale changes feed in roughly about two months later into the CPI. Now, what's really interesting is like before the pandemic, this was pretty much a constant roughly a two-month lag. Huh. So eight weeks later, whatever happened wholesale typically showed up in the CPI. 
what the pandemic did was completely throw these lags off to the point where you know prices started moving at the wholesale level. And obviously they're going up and that immediately fed into to retail. Like there was no lag whatsoever. And if it went up five, 6% of wholesale one month, guess what? The CPI was going up five, 6% of used cars the next month. Now, what we're seeing now, I think, is a little bit of a reversion to that, um, you know, the old lag of about two, three months. And that's why I think, you know, we've seen wholesale come off the last several months and people are saying, well, wait a second, the CPI used cars index is, you know, kind of unchanged or maybe up a little bit. Uh, so I think it's it's just the issue is that the lags are, are kind of back to what they were. This is sort of like gasoline. You know, when gasoline prices go up at wholesale level, you feel it right away and you see it right away at the pump. When they go down, it's a very gradual decline, right? You're kind of pocketing that extra margin. And I think dealers are doing the same thing and have been for a while. But I, I think that jig is up uh, and should be over the next couple of months. So let's talk a little bit more about this. And, you know, I'm starting to, like, feel a little bit better about always be wrong on everything. Cause I just look at these <laughs> measures, right? I look at trucking, yeah. I look at cars, I look at the AAA gasoline. It's like, look, all these lines are going down. They should show up. Can you talk a little bit about why these lags exists? What is the difference between some of these measured prices and the government prices? And what do you, do you have any theories or sort of explanations why past lags got disrupted and so that the gap between private survey measures of prices versus what showed up in government data did not have the same temporal relationship as it used to pre-pandemic. Temporal, temporal is a good word. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yes, I would I would talk about this with using, you know, let's go back to used cars. Yeah. One is, you know, that in terms of the pandemic, when it hit, um, what you had was basically a complete disruption in the used cars market. So yes. it wasn't just that people demanded used cars because let's say they were moving in the suburbs or whatever. The biggest shift was you had a natural seller in the used cars market, rental car companies, who became a net buyer of used vehicles. Right. And we really haven't seen that before. And what they did was they scooped up all the zero to three-year models that they could to sort of replenish their stock. Um, you know, things came back a lot stronger, obviously, in 21 than people thought. So take a company like Avis. They had about 450,000 vehicles in their fleet in 2019. That got down to about 290,000 by you know, the summer of 2021, right when demand was booming. So they couldn't replenish them for manufacturers. They ended up going to the used cars market. So what you found was price increases in the zero to three-year bucket, which is all they'll buy. Those price increases skyrocketed. If you're a dealer trying to buy a car, you can't find these vehicles. Right. So now you need to go out and buy four or five, six years. So all across that age curve, prices spiked. And it wasn't, you know, I think the issue is just the magnitude was so large that you couldn't really wait to price them out on retail, right? So you were paying way, way more than you were used to paying. You had to pass it on quickly. Uh, and so I think we saw those lags disrupted for that particular reason. Mm -hmm. Now on the way down, wholesale is getting a lot cheaper. You can still sell it for a bit more on the retail side. So again, just like gasoline, you kind of pocket the margins as long as you can on the way down. And I think that's what you're seeing. The other item I would actually mention where, honestly, I am, I'm pretty stumped as to what's going on is really furniture prices. Um, you know, we have seen, you talk about, you know, trucking rates going down, um, import prices of furniture going down, inventories have jumped. Yeah. All the big box retailers are telling you, you know, Walmart, Target, we've got too much of this stuff and we're discounting heavily. And yet the CPI is going up about 1%, you know, every single month. Um, and there, you know, typically you would start to see the stuff come through pretty quickly. I've honestly been waiting since March or April for furniture to really slide. And it just continues to sort of defy 
um, defy expectations. So there, I, I don't have as good of an answer in terms of what's happening, but we know all the signs are pointing yeah. to the fact that they should be dropping. And, and the industry will tell you that. I mean, you read any furniture industry trade publication, like I started doing when I was wrong on furniture for a while. Um, you know, Furniture Today magazine will tell you, hey, they're preparing for recession. They've got too much stuff. They're discounting. Orders are declining. And yet in the CPI, it's not showing up. I will say one other thing to think about is some of these samples in the CPI are not that large. Furniture, if you're talking about bedroom furniture, they may only have a couple of hundred quotes in the entire sample versus you know, thousands for something like rent um, or you know, a thousand for airfare. So the smaller sample, the, the larger you know, the, the chance that you'll have some, some errors, you might miss um, some of the price changes in a particular month. So that could also impact the lags um, that occur in the CPI. So, I mean, it is true on the whole that goods inflation has been going down. So I think it, it fell from like 10.7%, you know, last year to 7.1% last August. And meanwhile, services, as we mentioned, is starting to pick up. And services, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's something like triple the weight in, in the core index, something like that. Yeah. How, can you walk us through, like, A, why do services get that much weighting? And B, how significant is it for the core index that it's now going up? Yeah, so, I mean, the bulk of that weighting is is shelter. It's, mm-hmm. it's rent and it's owner's equivalent rent. Um, you know, in the core CPI, 40% of the entire core is just rent and OER combined. And so within services, you know, the bulk of the weight is coming from, from shelter. So that's really what's driving um, that that overweighting, if you will, to services relative to, to goods. The fact that it is going up so dramatically, you know, that's obviously been an issue for the core. Um, I would really say probably since, since early spring when shelter really started to accelerate. Now, you know, one thing I want to mention um, is that we, I think the shelter story, honestly, is something that most people knew was going to happen coming into this year, right? You mentioned some of these private market indices like apartment lists and Zillow and so on. Mm -hmm. They were showing these huge gains in rents, you know, late last year, last spring, last summer. So we knew that this was likely going to enter in the CPI this year. The question was always about magnitude. So whether it was going to be up 6% this year or 7%, which looks like we're headed for that 7% number. Um, So to me, like that's not really a surprise on the services side. I think most people who track this stuff closely realized, hey, Rents are going to be up a lot this year, probably somewhere in the 6 7% range. It's the other part of services, the non-shelter services stuff, that I think is the more interesting part of the story. Mm-hmm. And there, what you'll find is a lot of people talking about how wages are driving those services up, um, You know how um, all of these other costs in the non-shelter services, those are the sticky elements of inflation. And until that stuff starts to roll down, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be really hard to get core inflation down. I I would actually sort of counter that a little bit by arguing that a lot of what you've been seeing, and this has been true since really last, probably I would say fall, is we've had a lot of oscillation in that non-shelter service component. And that's mostly because of sort of the economy reopening and closing and kind of fits and spurts. So summer of 21, if you remember, airfare started to jump very significantly, people started traveling a bit again. So a lot of what was driving services in that point was actually things like airfares and hotels. It wasn't medical care services. It wasn't recreation services. Uh, 
you know, it was really personal care services. It was these sort of reopening categories, if you will. Then you had, you know, I think Delta was, was later in that year. Prices for those categories fell. The non-shelter services inflation actually decelerated very sharply. So basically what you've seen up until really pretty recently is just this quarter-to-quarter oscillation that's been going on in the non-shelter um, services index really just reflecting kind of the economy reopening and, and then slowing down. So, and we, we got that same dynamic this spring, by the way, when airfares spiked, and now they've been down the last few months. And so the non-shelter stuff is kind of moderating a little bit again. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So let's talk a little bit more on rent specifically for two reasons. A, because it is such a big part of uh, uh, you know core CPI, but also it's one of the most like people feel it and people complain. Certainly in New York, everyone is <laughs> aware of just like how brutal the rent market is, but also elsewhere. You mentioned that we sort of had reason to think that these, this number was coming in part because the private surveys were flagging this several, uh, like maybe even a year ago, the Zillows right. and all this. So for that raises one big question, which is like, is the data stale? And at a time when people are worried about, oh, are we going to create, is the Fed going to create a recession? Is it being too aggressive uh, in light of, you know, is it uh, whatever? Is, is it operating on old data that's not as timely as what the private sector surveys are showing? Is the public data stale? So I wouldn't necessarily say it's stale. I would just say that it measures something different than okay. what these private sector indices are measuring. So most of these private sector indices are measuring uh, new leases. So when you think about moving into a new apartment, you sign a brand new lease, that's what they are capturing. They're capturing that change in the rent for that unit with you know, a new tenant versus whatever it rented for. For, for the last tenant. And that's true of all of most of these apartment lists and so on. And so it's really just one segment of um, the market that those private private measures are capturing. The, the CPI is capturing the entire rental market. So it's not just people who are looking for new apartments or signing new leases. 
It's also people who are uh, renewing their lease. And it's also people who are currently renting and, and still on the same lease they were, you know, five, six, seven, eight months ago. So they want to capture the entire market versus just a slice of the market. So in that sense, I don't think it's stale. Now, that said, you know, when you think about is the Fed operating on old data, we do, we do know that it lags, right? Before this very reason, it doesn't capture, the BLS doesn't capture turning points in the market as, as well as these private sector measures, right? If, if something is changing in the marketplace, those new leases, the way those new leases are changing is going to be a much better indicator of what's happening then than the CPI will. That's true. But it's not as if the Fed, number one, doesn't watch the other private sector measures. Okay. It's not that you know they don't understand the lags. I mean, if I understand the lags in rent and other people do, I promise you the folks at the Fed do as well. Uh, so I don't think that they are you know, sitting here working on, on these sort of lagging indicators, if you will, uh, because they, they are they're capturing a huge amount of data to look at what's happening in the shelter. Um, and they also kind of see where shelters likely head, right? These private sector measures have right. started to roll over the last, you know, depending which one you want to look at, four to seven months, they've been slowing down quite a bit. So another thing related to housing and the cost of shelter, which again, it seems important because of the weight and just how much it, how important it is for the public. We have seen a clear slowdown in anything related to home buying and home purchasing. And of course, that isn't, I don't believe, is like captured directly. Historically speaking, is there a relationship or a stable relationship between activity in the home purchase market, the price of a house, the price of a monthly mortgage, which is shot up if you're just the, if you're buying a house yeah. today versus a year ago, and then what feeds through into rent prices? Can I just say that was going to be my next question? Tracy and I, we've been working together so long. We always do. This. We I keep asking the same questions, but can I just <coughs> tag on to that? So one thing I've heard <laughs> is there are some people who say that like interest rates going up could end up increasing the pressures on rent because more people decide they're not going to buy houses. The they're gonna, right. They're going to stay where they are, or keep renting an apartment, things like that. Yeah. So on, on that latter point, yes, that's, that's very possible. Um, you know, if it's getting too expensive to get a mortgage or you can't find a house to buy, you renew your lease or you, you know, are moving into a new apartment that certainly can actually push rents up in, in the short term. Um, until supply does eventually catch up. But yeah, that's that's very possible. We've seen that happen before. Uh, in terms of the idea of you know, the housing market and, and home purchase activity, it really is kind of what you're talking about, which is the, the knock-on effect on the rental market. That's really the way it's going to feed through into the rent index because you know, uh, contrary to, to popular belief, like house prices don't play any role whatsoever in the CPI at all. Um, even the owner's equivalent rent index, you know, it's not intended to measure house prices. It basically is using the contract rent data that they capture and sort of, you know, rejiggering it a little bit to, to come up with, with OER. But no house price goes right. into the index whatsoever. The mortgage interest stuff, you know, it used to actually be in the CPI prior to 1983 because uh, it was a very different methodology back then. Um, and so when, when rates were moving higher and the cost of servicing your mortgage moved up, that price actually was reflected in the CPI back in the day. Um, but in 1983, there was a lot of different problems with it. Um, and they ended up switching out to this new method of rental equivalence in 1983. So now that doesn't really play, play much of a role, again, other than the knock-on effect on the rental market, even what's happening in housing. 
Is that how Volcker defeated inflation by yeah, removing mortgage rates tools, from CPI? Right? It's like, oh, we want to raise rates to fight inflation. Oh, but our current measure well, of inflation includes mortgages. We better change the rules because otherwise our rate yeah. regime won't help us at all. It's a little well, weird. So, so actually, in, in that instance, because of, of the rate increases, mortgage interest costs in the CPI skyrocketed. Yeah. And actually, like they're we're doing pushing inflation higher. So even though he was boosting rates at the same time, uh, you would think, okay, higher rates, you should lower inflation. But in fact, inflation was yeah. was moving higher, partly because mortgage interest costs were, were so much higher. And there was a lot of problems with the idea of mortgage interest costs. I mean, they knew about mortgage interest costs and, and the problems with sort of putting it into the, a cost of living index. A lot of what you, you know, a lot of issues that people have with the CPI, whether it's rents or, or other indexes, is really about the concept of, of how you design it, how you think about what you should be capturing. And that fundamentally gets back to the idea of, you know, what is the purpose of the CPI? And it's intended to be a cost of living index. Um, and, you know, they knew back, I think it was in the 70s, they had papers at the BLS saying, look, we need to get away from this, you know, mortgage interest costs um, because it doesn't really fit the way that we're supposed to construct a CPI. You know, you could do a whole separate episode on that, but I, I think the short version is, I think we should. In, in, 1983, in 1983, they decided to say, hey, we have been talking about this rental equivalence method for many years now, and we think it's the right way to do it. And by the way, I will just say very recently, um, National Academy of Sciences basically put out a report that said, you know, here are our recommendations for improving the CPI in the coming years. And they talked about looking at, you know, these private measures of rent as potentially trying to incorporate them into the CPI. But they said up until then, the best measure that we have is really the rental equivalence method that we, hmm. we use today. Um let me ask a slightly less provocative question um, other than how we measure uh, or don't measure uh, mortgage interest in CPI. So historically, I, one of the reasons we focus on rents is because people feel them. Um, they're a big component of the of the core index, but also because rents and wages tend to be tightly linked. And I think there's concern that as rent inflation accelerates, are we going to see that knock-on effect into wages? What are you seeing there? Yeah, uh, as you said, it's, it is a pretty tight fit. I mean, basically, I would say labor income and and rent growth are are pretty tightly correlated. Um, you know, again, I think as rents have gone up, they've correlated well with this improvement in in wage growth. One of the interesting um, sort of tidbits is that a lot of even though rents are rising, a lot of people who are re-upping their leases are actually or signing new leases in you know, sort of more uh, professionally managed apartment buildings. So more of your large multifamily unit buildings um, are actually showing that their incomes have increased pretty significantly over the last two years. So even though we talk about, you know, the idea of a lot of people getting priced out because rents are rising so sharply, people who are signing new leases and having to provide the paperwork from their bank statements or, mm. or you know, their, their uh, employment uh, information are showing that incomes have actually also increased pretty significantly. And so I think, you know, as you start to see wage growth decelerate a little bit, which is already starting to happen at the margins, um, you know, people who manage these apartments sort of, they get this kind of real-time flow of what labor income looks like. And I, I think that's partly also why you ought to see rents start to decelerate is because they're not raising rent 6% when they see labor income only growing at, let's say, 3%. Where did you get, where's that data from that the people, that the cohort that is signing new leases is actually seeing wage gains that are keeping up with rent? Yeah, so that comes from RealPage. Um, oh. And that's another, you know, large sort of um, 
private market provider of everything from rent data to all sorts of information on multifamily buildings. Um, and so they've been tracking this and sort of publishing, you know, stories on this for the last, I think, about 18 months or so. Um, just this idea that even though rents are, are moving higher, people are able to afford those rents because their incomes are, are rising uh, alongside those, those rent yields as well. So one other question on rent before we go off it, and again, it sort of connects to uh, uh, broader housing questions. Uh, a lot of people, I think, in the last couple of years when rates were low, bought houses as investment properties and maybe don't want to sell right now, in part because there aren't a lot of buyers who uh, are excited about the sticker shock of what a monthly mortgage <laughs> now costs them. Could this bring more rental supply uh, to market in your view? It's like, well, I can't sell it, so I'll rent it. And could that have a dampening effect on rents? Yeah, very possibly. I mean, uh, most indices don't track single family rentals. Um, the only one that I'm aware of that does is it's either Zillow or CoreLogic. It's one of those two has a single family rent index where they do track uh, what rents are specifically for that sort of, you know, uh, for that type of, of rental. Um, and yeah, obviously, if, if you can't sell it and you bought it as investment property, it makes quite a lot of sense given that you know, demand is still pretty robust for, for rentals. Vacancy rates have only barely started to edge higher from the lows that we saw, you know, even six months ago. Yeah. Uh, so there's still quite a lot of demand out there. So it makes sense to do that at this stage. And yeah, hopefully that can help bring at least that one segment of, of, rent, of the rental market down. And by the way, that is also captured in the CPI, right? The CPI isn't, when we talk about rents, it's not just apartments. They also okay. do capture... Um, single-family rentals in that entire sample as well. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So we've been talking a lot about rents, um, which have been pushing services up higher, but are at the point you've been making, are expected to start to decrease sometime soon, or at least the rate of acceleration will start slowing down. Talk to yeah. us about another big change that you see potentially on the horizon that has to do with healthcare. 
Yeah, so this is another one that I think is it's coming very soon. It's gonna it's gonna help everyone looking for that transitory inflation story to yes. you know kind of <laughs> kind of pop up again. We hope I can um, get. Yeah, so um, you know, rent as I mentioned, the biggest part of the course CPI forty percent. The second biggest component is medical care. Um, that's worth just about eleven percent of the core. And for the last year, medical care has been rising at about you know roughly zero point five percent each month. Um, which means it's been adding about five basis points to the core change every single month. That's been very steady. It's kind of like clockwork pretty much all, all of last year. Um, starting in October, that index is going to turn negative. And it's going to turn negative in most months over the course of the next year. And so what was a pretty constant um, source of a boost to the core every single month is actually going to turn into a relatively decent drag on the core. And, you know, it's not because medical care is getting cheaper or so on. Uh, this is actually just one of these quirks in the methodology that you kind of have to be aware of. Um, and it comes very specifically from the health insurance index within the broader medical care gauge. Well, what's the, med- so what is that change that's coming? Why is it, what is get a switch from it pushing up to being a drag? Yeah, so, so the story is basically that, well, first of all, health insurance is updated once a year, typically in, in October. It used to be September. Last year was October. This year will be in the October report again. Um, but this data lags by almost about a year. Um, so the BLS takes this data, and this is from an official source, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. So this is sort of, you know, they, they put out a, a big report on how much in premiums is being collected, how much is being paid out, and how much is retained. Uh, by the insurer. So this is kind of the holy grail of, of this data set. Unfortunately, it doesn't come out until about 10 months at, into the year. And so what we're really capturing this October is going to be activity that happened in 2021. And so what's going to happen here is that if you think about 2020 and during the pandemic, people you know, put off things like elective surgeries. They didn't go to the doctor because people didn't want to be wait, you know, in waiting rooms with, with other people who might have COVID, right? So there just wasn't a lot of utilization of healthcare services in 2020. Premium income continued to increase, but the benefits paid out actually declined. The way the CPI captures health insurance is by looking at the change in these retained earnings for insurers from one year to the next. And you know, very quickly, the reason they do this is because it's really hard to price health insurance from one month to the next because policies are changing all the time. Right, the what what a policy will cover will be could be changing quarterly, monthly, you know, each year. Um, the risk factors that go into the policy can change. So when the BLS is pricing any good or service, they want apples to apples from one month to the next. And if something changes, they want a quality adjusted. But in healthcare and in health insurance, they found that's just way way too hard to do. So the roundabout way of this indirect way of capturing the price to you, the consumer of health insurance, is. Basically, what does it cost the business to offer you health insurance? Hmm. If their cost of administering health services or health insurance is rising, you'll probably see that in your premiums. And so the way they capture this is by looking at these retained earnings and how they're changing from one year to the next. So during the pandemic, premiums kept rising. However, benefits paid out to people went down quite substantially because of COVID and, and the lack of utilization of healthcare. So what you saw was a huge spike in retained earnings. And what that meant for the CPI was that in October of 2021, 
which reflected this 2020 data, health insurance jumped by 2% in the month of October, which means that basically, since you only update it once a year, it's effectively going to print right around 2% every single month like clockwork hmm. until the next update. Fast forward to 2021, people started you know, going back and, and taking care of these elective surgeries and, and utilizing healthcare much, much more than they did in 2020. Premiums didn't really change too dramatically. So now you have this mismatch again where way more utilization of healthcare than you had in 2020 and 21. And so the, those retained earnings dropped on a year-over-year basis. Wow. So what's going to happen now when you update it is that you're going to have a very large drag. So health insurance, which has been 2% a month pretty much for the last year, is very likely to print in, a to- in the October report around minus 4%. Wow. You know, on the surface, you say, well, plus 2 to minus 4, that doesn't really sound like a lot. But if you kind of put it into context, it actually is, is kind of dramatic. Because number one, in the month of October itself, that alone is worth almost a seven basis point swing on just the core CPI. So if you're forecasting, let's say the core maybe you get a 0.4 in October, you're probably looking at something that's more like a 0.3 instead, just because of this move in, in health insurance. And you know that's kind of the difference between a 5% annualized rate and you know something that's more like a 3.5% annualized rate. So that's a pretty big gap. Mm. The other issue is here, on a year-over-year basis, health insurance currently is about 25% year-over-year because of the steady you know, 2% march every month. Uh, when the next report comes out in September, which is sort of the last hurrah before it you know, turns negative, we'll probably hit about 28% year-over-year. Once this minus four comes in in October and it stays there for the bulk of the year, by September of 2023, health insurance, I, I suspect, will go from plus 28 to about minus four year-over-year. Wow. That swing is worth almost about 80 basis points on the core CPI. So you have an index that's worth just over 1% of the entire core CPI that by itself will subtract almost a full percentage point from core inflation over the next year. Tracy, that's pretty dramatic. This is so crazy to me because the whole point of like measuring this stuff and that monetary policy is like counter-cyclical and this huge component, as you just described it, has no, there's no actual like economically cyclical impulse part of it. Well, this was actually going to be my next question. And Omer, that was absolutely fascinating. And the thing about qualitative adjustments was something that I only like really discovered this year. So I didn't know the BLS, you know, if they're looking at the cost of a refrigerator, for instance, will take into account technological advances on the cost of the refrigerator if it now comes with, I don't know, Wi-Fi connectivity or something. (laughs) Blockchain. Uh, Yeah, yeah, blockchain enabled fridge. Um, And they will factor that into the CPI. But I mean, this gets to one of the the major criticisms of the indices themselves. You can kind of see what they're trying to do. So it's difficult to measure qualitative improvements in things like healthcare insurance. But on the other hand, it does lead people to look at these things and go, well, what are we actually measuring here? And isn't it weird that the cost of living, you know, as measured by the CPI, which includes rent, healthcare, food, energy, whatever can change just because of like the way this one thing is measured, retained earnings versus the way we measure goods and things like that. What do you say to that criticism? It's it's fair to, to make those sorts of criticisms. I guess I would say a couple of things. One is that, you know, this is never a static process in terms of the methodology. Right. So the BLS is always trying to improve upon 
whatever it is that they're doing. A good example of this is something like new vehicles. Um, just in April of this year, in fact, they introduced a brand new methodology for capturing the price of new vehicles. So before they used to go to dealers, figure out what was selling, you know, try to capture those prices. Now they're using a massive data set from JD Power, which captures, you know, essentially real live transactions that are occurring. So they've updated that quite significantly to really reflect kind of the conditions on the ground for people who are, are buying new cars. So there's always there's always this, this sort of uh, you know goal to improve upon the methodology. So that's that's number one. Number two is you know you kind of do the best you can with what you're given, and by that I mean that a lot of these things are subject to things like budget constraints. Mm. Um, you know when we talk about rent, for example, the BLS. If you survey a unit, let's say in January, and you say, hey, what's, what, how much are you paying in rent? You come back to that unit, you don't come back to it in February or March or April, you come back to it in July, six months later. Part of the rationale is because, you know, rents don't change a lot uh, in terms of the contract. So six months seem like an adequate amount of time. But the uh, two other reasons are one, respondent burden, right? If I'm knocking on your door every single month asking you what your rent is, you might be less willing to participate in the survey. But the other is also, there's a budget, budgetary constraint involved here. Uh, in terms of, you know, sending people out into the field to capture a lot of these data sets. Um, so that all of these things sort of constrain what, uh, you know, the BLS can ultimately produce. In this particular instance for health insurance, you know, I, I can sort of understand a bit more of the criticism, but the issue here is really the data is just lag 10 months. Yeah. Um, we can't do anything about that. I mean, the data that they are getting is from the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. And if you think about capturing all of the premium information, all of the claims that are paid by all of these health insurers, you know, it just takes up for, for the last year, it just takes a while to put those numbers together. So this is just something where the BLS just has to wait on yeah. the data that they're capturing. Again, this that data set is, you know, effectively like the Bible for, for health insurance data, right? And so in this instance, they can't do anything. They just have to wait until that's produced. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, in some instances, like I, I get the criticism, I just think you, you've got to understand that they're working within a number of, of different constraints um, and, you know, sort of take that into account when you're thinking about uh, criticizing them for, for particular approaches um, in terms of, uh, you know, how they constructed it. Omer, can we do a live event with you one day where people throw out a CPI category and then you like on the fly explain it? No, I seriously, people would love that. Explain how it's constructed because we could. I this we could just talk forever on every category. I found this conversation seriously. Can we can we do that someday? Yeah, there's you know there's uh, like 243 individual components in the CPI. <laughs> I love and it. I, I think I've got most of them down, so we could probably do that. Right. Um, Other fats I, and oils, including yeah. peanut butter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I can't. Yeah, I didn't say. I, I didn't say we'd do the PPI, but I think it's okay. <laughs> oh, that's true. Oh, wow. You actually knew that was a PPI code versus a CPI. <laughs> that's very impressive. Yeah, because I think we've, we've talked about it yeah. in the past. So that one, <laughs> one final thing I just want to mention on this health insurance stuff is that, you know, part of the reason why I think it is pretty important is because the, the this data set, uh, the official report is coming out, I think, in about a week. I, I tend to use separate source, yeah. which is, you know, captures quite well. But basically, my, you know, my feeling is that folks who are either trading inflation or who just generally follow inflation are pretty unaware of this, this change that's coming. So this is going to be something that, you know, is at the margin going to help the Fed month over month for the next year, along with, I think, the coming decline of used cars. So really Q4 potentially is shaping up to 
to see some lower core inflation prints that's, for not just used cars, this but makes also- Joe so Yeah, that's right. I'm gonna spike the football at the end of Q4. Omer Sharif, thank you so much for coming on. Fascinating conversation. Always love chatting with you. Always learn something. And uh, we'll have to have you back again soon. Thank you. Take care, Omer. Thanks, Omer. That was great. I love talking to Omer. Mm-hmm. I, I always learned so much. Sitting aside, the fact that he gave me, you know, he like throws these little like bits of red meat for team transitory. <laughs> I just actually like learning about this. Like I had no idea how they captured health insurance. That's so interesting to me. Yeah. So I think I have maybe three major takeaways yeah. from that. Like one, it's just crazy how much of the market and our daily lives are linked to the construction of this one index and how, ha- well, I mean, it's multiple indexes, but PPI, CPI, and how it works. Like, think about all the payments, treasury-linked securities, things like that, that are linked to CPI, and so much of it depends on the individual construction. And then the second takeaway, you know, what he was saying about the time lags and how COVID kind of messed those up, I think is a really good way of looking at why there's been so much confusion over inflation. Yeah. And then thirdly... This is something that I'd heard before, but the resource constraints on the BLS in terms of assembling some of this data and trying to adjust it, I think that is maybe an underappreciated factor over the past couple of years. Well, and especially like some of these, some of the stickier prices within goods that Mm -hmm. like, of course, these should come down, right? Because we have every big box retailer saying we have tons of inventory. The housing market slowed down. So it's like all kinds of reasons to think, yeah, we should be seeing some deflation in furniture. It's not happening. But then he says, oh, they, you know, they, maybe they only could track a couple hundred in the survey. Well, right. If yeah. your survey respondents are like the big box stores yeah. that have pricing power or yeah. still have pricing power for a while, then it'll be sticky. No, there's so many. I, and we should at some point do an episode on when they changed the rules of inflation, because they didn't look like it's, cra- it's crazy to think that like, you know, 40 years ago, if they raised rates, that right. mathematically raised measured inflation because interest in mortgages was included in the CPI, which is also like kind of maybe intuitive to a lot of people. Well, it's one of those things like you can see why they would do it. But on the other hand, it also seems odd if you think that CPI is supposed to measure the cost of living. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. We could talk about this for a long time. Okay, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Omer Sharif. He's at FCast of the Month. Follow our producer, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Armin. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, let's face it, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. 
Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.